Welcome to Liquid Church Audio. The message you're about to enjoy was originally delivered at Liquid by Pastor Tim Lucas. Liquidchurch.com, living water for a thirsty generation. Now, we're live on the web. Well, maybe you feel as lost as I do. I want to welcome you to Hollywood Jesus, uh, Glimpses of God on the Silver Screen. And if you're confused, no worries. If that opening clip from the TV series Lost didn't make sense to you, you're not alone. Uh, even for people who watch the show. Uh, any Lost fans out there today, okay? A few Lost fans? Can any of you tell me what the heck is going on? <laughs> uh, even if you're a diehard fan, it's a confusing show, very challenging to make heads or tails of what's happening on this island in the South Pacific where a plane, a group of plane crash survivors have landed. Lots of loose ends, messy stories, unclear characters. But we know the basic premise, and that is that Oceanic Flight 815 from Sydney to Los Angeles crashes on this uncharted island somewhere in the South Pacific, and about 48 people survive. And they quickly realize this is no ordinary deserted island. They're not alone, and the natives aren't friendly. <laughs> Their survival is threatened by all sorts of, you know, mysterious entities, like including, like, polar bears, these people known as the Others. Now, this is lost in its third season. And besides garnering a bunch of critical awards, it features this ongoing clash between, like, faith and science in certain episodes. And while some questions are raised, new characters introduced, and it's kind of complex. And I was talking with Tara Leahy, who sings on our worship team, and she, like, is a, is a lost junkie. She's like, I watch every week. And, uh, and she was like, she goes, here's the deal, Tim. I was like, well, kind of update me. She's like, we as the viewers are currently feeling just about as lost as the people on the darn island. Uh, there's so many messy stories out there. We're all at this point kind of wondering what the heck is going on. Well, what I wanted to do is cut through some of the, you know, complexities and focus just for a moment on the two main characters who you just saw in our opening clip, Charlie Pace and the man known as Mr. Echo. <laughs> Again, you heard them reciting the 23rd Psalm while they watched the plane burn. And the Nigerian fellow Echo, he carries, you can see with him, a Jesus stick that has scripture verses carved all over it. And, and Charlie's always brandishing, you saw him with the statue of a Virgin Mary. Some of you know why. <laughs> and there are distinct religious overtones to those two characters in particular, and their backstories are kind of interesting. See, both of these guys are lost people. People who are not only physically lost, but they've made some serious mistakes in their past that make them feel spiritually lost. Take Charlie. He's a former, uh, actually a rock star from Manchester, England, which is actually where David Bancroft, our worship leader, is from. Uh, and no, 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 you know, the, the bassist, and he's a principal songwriter for Drive Shaft, this rock band that he formed with his brother Liam. And they're kind of like the British rock group Oasis, kind of had this huge hit before the band bottoms out with, surprise, Charlie's heroin addiction. <laughs> So Charlie, the guy there you see with fate kind of on his knuckles, he's had a rough life. And in flashbacks, we see him slumming with groupies, kind of wrestling with his drug addiction, addiction. And his brother Liam, who in the meantime has become a respectable family man. And that's where Charlie is when he winds up on the island. He was actually in Australia to try and convince his brother to get back on the band. And when he refused, he said, no, you've got to enter rehab. Charlie turns down his offer, gets on this flight, and here he is crashed, desert island, lost. Now Echo is another story. Before arriving on the island, Mr. Echo was a ruthless and vicious warlord in Nigeria. It's like, whoa, okay, Drockstar, warlord, uh, drug trafficker. But like Charlie, he had a brother too, who was a Catholic priest. So two brothers, one a murderer, one a priest. Well, in the midst of smuggling heroin out of Nigeria, he gets his priest brother killed, for which he carries tremendous guilt. So, so after he's killed, Echo assumes the role on this island of the village priest. He says, I'm going to convert, I'm going to be the priest. So former warlord is now the man of the cloth. Okay, this is how this island works. So when he clashes on this, on this island, no one knows his past, and he spends time with this Jesus stick with scripture on it, and he actually tries to build a church on the island, kind of a way to expiate the guilt he carries around for his past life. Now, these two guys bring up an interesting theme. Both are lost in a physical sense as well as spiritually. And that's what I think gives this series this incredible appeal in our culture. Because it's a metaphor about life. It's not just for people who get, you know, lost on a desert island, but for people who've made mistakes in their life in the past and find themselves kind of out of touch or disconnected spiritually. Maybe that's why you're here this morning. If so, that is awesome. This is a great church to plug into. But one of the biggest premises of this whole show is this idea that this island, for whatever reason, by whatever power, allows you to almost relive past mistakes tragedies, painful experiences that happen to you in your pre-crash life and sort of like redo them, in, if you will, in order to bring like healing and redemption to the person. It's an interesting theme. Well, what's interesting is that Jesus actually had a lot to say about people who are lost. That was actually his terminology and looking for a do-over in life. 
who may have made a wreck of their lives and kind of feel lost spiritually. In fact, Jesus actually told a series of stories about lost things and people. And he ended and culminated with a story about a pair of lost brothers who were lost spiritually. I want to invite you to turn to Luke 15. It's actually printed in your, your scripture uh, pamphlet there that you got in your seat with your, your notes. And we'll get a little bit of lights for you so you can follow along. And this title of this story, this teaching of Jesus is called The Parable of the Lost Son. And I'm guessing some of you are familiar with this parable. Parable is simply a fancy way of saying a story with a buried meaning. And I want to read this together. Uh, Luke 15, 11 through 13. So Jesus continued, he was doing teaching on lost things. He said, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he'd spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. And he longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired men have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. And he ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer even worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. And when he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied. And your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. Well, the older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him, but he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him? My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad. Because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. How many of you have heard this story before? Maybe you've, you've been familiar with this. Okay, yeah, I expect the majority of you. What's interesting is that when Jesus told this story, he had no way of knowing that a TV series in 2007 would eventually feature a storyline about two lost brothers. But both brothers in his story take two different approaches to life. Yet both wind up spiritually lost. They're kind of opposites of one another, like Echo and his brother Yemi. One's kind of a rule breaker. A person who squandered his life on reckless living. There, there's, there's a word for that. Begins with a P. You probably know this as maybe the parable of the prodigal son. Okay, great. Yeah, so the one brother's a prodigal. That just means someone who's wastefully extravagant, kind of morally reckless. But his older brother actually is a prodigy. He, he's a rule keeper. Someone who's like a marvelous moral example. Yet, by the end of the story, he kind of winds up spiritually lost as well. See, prodigals and prodigies are not as far apart as you'd guess. I want to take Charlie from Lost, for instance. I was looking online this week, and in his official character bio, he said he was discovered at an early age to be a musical prodigy, an incredible pianist. And if you've heard of prodigies, a prodigy is a person with extraordinary gifting or talents. If you expand the definition of a prodigy, it's, it's, a, it's a marvelous example, a person endowed with exceptional qualities. You ever hear Charlotte Church, that little girl singer? Just incredible. She began singing like when she was five. It's like the voice of an angel, a prodigy. But what happens in Lost is that Charlie, he begins growing up and he becomes a rock star. And I think we all know how that goes. (laughs) Little money, little fame, some success. You've seen behind the music on VH1. It's almost a cliche. And he starts using and he becomes a drug addict. And, And the band disintegrates. He squanders all his savings. He's rich. And suddenly the prodigy has become a prodigal. A prodigal is someone who actually squanders his talents or his money in a reckless fashion. Now, prodigals are always in the news. You probably know many of them. Robert Downey Jr., for instance, right? Gifted actor, you know, has actually won an Oscar, but just kind of like throws it all away with his drug habits. 
And what's interesting is that there are prodigies who become prodigals in the course of their life. Guys, baseball fans here today. Yes, baseball fans? Few? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Mets fans are like, yeah. Yankee fans are like, yeah, dude. I know, tough week. Okay, I know. Uh, in sports, I want to think, okay, let's say Yankees-Mets. Think of like Daryl Strawberry, Dwight Gooden, right? Daryl Strawberry, when he broke into the big leagues, I mean, a prodigy, right? In his early, like, 20s, I mean, mammoth home runs, money, fame, you know the story, squanders it all in drugs and prostitutes. Arrested for, for wife abuse. And just the name Daryl Strawberry or Dwight Gooden make, you know, Mets fans kind of wince. Ah! Hall of Fame caliber <laughs> squandered. Prodigies who had the world at their fingertips become the prodigal. Question now for you. Make it live. Which do you identify more with? Are, are you more like a prodigal? Meaning, you're, you're, well, if you had to choose, you're more kind of a rebellious rule breaker. Or are you more like a prodigy? Like, you're the marvelous example. Kind of the religious rule keeper. Prodigal or prodigy? I want you to kind of choose one this morning and track along. Because they follow actually one after another in the dictionary. And each begins the same way. With a prod. <laughs> A drive or a push or a poke. But where one is stirred in an extraordinary, exceptional direction, the other is driven away from what's good, wasting their potential. So which are you more like? You want a quick and dirty way of telling whether you're, you're more of a prodigal or more of a prodigy? Um, what, what did you drive to church this morning? Some of you, I, I was watching in the parking garage. I saw you drive in. Some of you, I heard drive in. You know what I'm talking about. Da, 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 da. Anyone ride a bike here this morning? Yeah, a few bikers. No bikers. You're all prodigies. <laughs> Prodigals all ride the Harleys, right? Now, there's some variation on that. Maybe you saw Mike Leahy. He's got a 1971 Yamaha fat boy. It doesn't exactly inspire fear. <laughs> but motorcycles are like the ride of choice for prodigals. You know, wind in your hair, freedom of the road, leather. On the other hand, you guys know what prodigies drive, right? Minivan, right? Six-seater, 10 airbags, family-friendly. Let's hear from minivans. Okay. Um, what's funny is Mike actually has a motorcycle and a minivan, which kind of, he's kind of split personality, but beyond transportation, let's try it this way. Geography can help you know if you have more prodigal tendencies or not. Where do you live? Where do you live? Where do some, some of you live? I asked you on the way in, but by nature, prodigals are kind of drawn to the cities, right? Like, this is like my brother, like he got out of school and he's like, I'm going to New York city. They like to move. They want to be in New York or LA experience all the drama. You know, the, 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 the action, the sensuality that life has to offer. And so they're drawn, you know, the city, it's where you're going to find yourself. An environment you can explore, all the world has to offer. Any of you live in a city? Any of you actually live in a city? Wow, all suburbanites today. Thank you. One of you. All right. One prodigal here. Everyone's like, no, we're marvelous examples. Um, <laughs> prodigies like me, we live in the suburbs, right? It's safe there. My wife and I live in Madison. And, and you know, there's like, there's not a lot of, you know, decadence or, or risky behavior that totally like, threatens the, the establishment. You know, it's like, you know, work nine to five, home by 515. Every Tuesday and Friday, garbage day. Thursday recycling, you know, minivan washing on Saturday, right? Uh, how many of you would say I skew, you, you skew prodigy. You're a little bit more like a, a prodigy. This is an unscientific litmus test, okay, but it's revealing. If you'd rather live in the city, you have prodigal tendencies, more in the suburbs, prodigies. Now, if you're a mix of the two, you know where those people live, Hoboken, right? <laughs> not, not quite the city, not, not quite a suburb, right? <laughs> the reality is all of us have a little mix of both deep down inside. Well, Jesus tells this story for both types of people who, because of their wiring, have very different approaches for finding life. See, the prodigal tries to find life through rebellious rule-breaking. This is the younger brother, right? You can follow along in your notes. At first, it's really two stories in one. But he demands his inheritance early on from his dad, jumps on his Harley, heads out to Vegas. And the main philosophy of the prodigal is life can be found on my terms. I want to do it my way. Less control, the better. I don't need anyone else cramping my style. Not much for family, not much use for God. The prodigy, on the other hand, tries to find life through religious rule-keeping. And this is the older brother who stays at home in this story and acts responsibly. He actually helps his father with the family business. He's never impolite, and he, and he has tremendous family values. He's like obedient, he's hardworking, he's loyal. Now the question is, which one of those do you think is more closely connected to God? Which one of those approaches would you think is closer to living life as God intended, the prodigal or the prodigy? Admit it. Our tendency would be to say that, well, the prodigy, the rule keepers, right? They're the disciplined and moral and, and the conservative ones, right? Marvel examples, they go to church, play by the rules. Well, in this story, Jesus flips that assumption on its head. He says, look close. I want you to tell you a story about two brothers because in reality, these, these brothers, look close. Both of them are spiritually lost. 
in many ways, the, 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 this passage should be told the story of the lost brothers, not the one lost son, but lost sons. Charlie and Liam, Echo and Yemi, Prodigal and Prodigy, yet somehow incredibly, in their vastly different approaches to life, both lose connection with the source of life itself. They lose connection with God. I'll show you what I mean. Begin with the younger son, right? The hellraiser. You know this. In verse 12, when the younger son says to his father, give me my share of the estate, commentators agree that Jesus' audience, first century, would have went, <gasps> see, in first century Middle Eastern culture, you can never in, get an inheritance until a father dies. So for a son to say to his dad, hey, give me my, my inheritance now while you're still living, it was the equivalent of saying, I wish you were dead. So we quickly you know, learned that this younger guy's behavior, high rebellion, He's insulting his father. He's rejecting his family. In effect, he's like, I'm better off without you in my life. Anyone have a 17-year-old, right? Okay, you might be familiar with this. And maybe you can identify with this. You know, or maybe you're like, you know, yeah, life can be found by leaving home, thumbing one nose at authority, setting off on your own journey. Make that parents, make that God. But the motivating impulse is, is, is known well to youth, but not limited. It's, it's saying, I know better. I have a better idea than you do for where I can find happiness and meaning and fulfillment actually in life. That's the attitude of the younger guy. But what's crazy is his father didn't sit him down <laughs> or say, wait, right? beat him, as actually would have been the Middle Eastern custom. It was an outrage to insult a patriarch that way. Rather, the father agrees to the son's demand. It says, so he divided his property between them. You can follow along here. But, but what kind of father does this? I mean, would your dad do this? I mean, my, I was like, my dad would not do this. <laughs> he doesn't punish or try to thwart his rebellious kid, but he grants them the freedom to actually go their own way and leave the family. Apparently, this is a father, Jesus says, who so values his children's freedom that he's willing to give them free choice. And that's what we have in life. That is what God has given each one of us, whether we acknowledge it or not, free will. The ability to decide for ourselves how we want to live and act on it. So we're told in verse 13 that the boy got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth and, and wild living. <laughs> if you... If you circle that got together all he had the greek verb used it means to turn into cash which is to say the son took his father's property and liquidated it <laughs> he sells off his family savings so he can travel abroad blow the joint and go to parts unknown where the action is and that word squander that verb translates to scatter like the images of throwing like dandelions to the wind money to the wind remember having your first job or your most recent promotion your first whiff of real cash what's he do Sorry, hold your ears. He pisses it away on wild living. The, uh, this is Pastor Glenn. Uh, he had a recent, he was down in, uh, you know, bed and breakfast down in Florida. Um, the implication in Jesus' story is that this guy began living large, okay? Serious debauchery, okay? You know, spent the night at the clubs with hooch, hoochie mamas. Think like Kid Rock, okay? Sure, had some wild times. And if you're a prodigal, maybe you're like, hey, I can identify with that. I don't even know what I'm doing here this morning. I just, I, I've been here all night at the bar. I walked up here, I was music. Okay. Uh, <laughs> I was talking with a friend this week, actually, a close friend of mine. He's just returning to church after spending his 20s kind of in a wilderness. That's how he describes it, wilderness. Raised religious. But once he got his first job out of college, he said, I tasted success. I got that with the cash. He's like, it was like the party started, Tim. He's like, I started, I started drinking with the guys from works. He goes, actually, it kind of, it did, you know, it's a cliche. He goes, but it led to drugs. Weekends, we were in the clubs. And I, he was like, it just snowballed from there. And he's like, after a year, it was like I was living two lives. He goes, I go into work by day, respectable, businessman, reliable. But by night, I was like someone else. I actually found myself, he said, I had this moment where he found himself in the bathroom of one of the dingiest clubs in New York doing cocaine. And he found himself all alone. He's like, what seemed like such a good idea, freedom through no rules, actually began choking the life out of me. <laughs> Ephesians 2 describes this approach to life this way. It wasn't so long ago, Paul writes, that you were mired in that old stagnant life of sin. You let the world, which doesn't know the first thing about living, tell you how to live. You filled your lungs with polluted unbelief and then exhaled disobedience. And the Bible calls this approach to life plainly sin. And that's a widely misunderstood term. Because sin is not about just like, a, like certain actions, like, you know, all right, don't drink, no drugs. Rather, sin is about an attitude. Not an action, but an attitude. An attitude that says, you know what? I know best in life. And I don't need anyone telling me what to do. I'll do it like Frank Sinatra, my way, right? Because if I allow God or anyone else to have a say, they're going to ruin it. They'll put like all sorts of like, you know, controls and restrictions on it. I want to call the shots. God doesn't know what's best for me. I do. And when you take the rudder of our life ship, you know what? It actually does work. At least for a while. <laughs> We're told in verse 14 
that after the young son had spent everything, there's a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. I mean, as any prodigal knows, the money eventually runs out. The party winds down. <laughs> Lovers drift in and out of your life. Friends move on, or perhaps even abandon you when the going gets rough. And every prodigal, at some point during the chaos, in a reflective moment, hears that haunting whisper. You know, if this is really living, if this is true freedom and happiness, then, then, then why am I so lonely? <laughs> Why do I hurt so bad when I'm sober? Ever feel that way? Sometimes it takes hitting rock bottom for that whisper to be heard. And this young man's life started showing some painful wear. The trust fund was finally empty. Who knows what wounds he'd suffered along the way. Maybe a string of broken relationships or betrayals. You know, maybe an STD or maybe he helped to pay, terminate a pregnancy. The picture is of a person with some serious battle scars from their journey. A hollow face, an empty wallet a lost soul. Verses 15 and 16 say that his situation was so desperate, they went to pretty sad measures, started slopping actually with pigs. (laughs) Remember, Jesus was talking to a Jewish audience at the time. So this was like rock bottom. (laughs) And you know what kosher is? Yeah. (laughs) Under Old Testament laws, pigs were considered unclean, ritualistic, unclean animals. So for this prodigal to eat food that the pigs was touched was to be degraded beyond belief. I mean, this guy had like, he was in the slop, like, rolling in the mud, sunk to the depths. And maybe some of you can actually identify with that. When that initial rush of life on your own terms now in your rear view and things are not going as planned. In fact, if you're completely honest, it's like life is in shambles. Maybe you have a string of failed relationships or, or your marriage is floundering. Or, or, or you somehow end up caught in a cycle of of destructive behavior or addictions that you just can't seem to break out of. And it's been years. I mean, you don't have to be in your 20s to feel loss. (laughs) And when the prodigal hits rock bottom, he begins thinking of home, of his father. Verse 17 says, When he came to his senses, he said, "How, How many of my father's hired men have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I'll set out and I'm going to go back to my father and say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and went to his father. And this is significant, folks, because this is the first step to being spiritually found. To recognize that lostness doesn't stem from a breaking of the rules as much as it does from the breaking of a relationship. This boy's thoughts turn to his father and he realizes his rebellion at its core has severed the one relationship that matters most. Romans 5.13 says this, sin disturbed relations with God in everything and everyone. And what was the result? So death, this huge abyss separating us from God, dominated the landscape. That's what sin is. Literally, the willful breaking of our relationship with our Heavenly Father to actually cut God out of the picture. That's what sin, if you wanted to define sin, it would be this, your self-centered attempt to arrange for life without God. And it leads to death. And that's not just physical or emotional consequences, but spiritual death. We're cut off from the source of life itself, God, and we feel empty, isolated, lost. The only company we have is our long and sorry record of failures. But hitting rock bottom, for those of you who have done it, you know, or you've been through recovery, is not a bad thing necessarily. Because it has a way of jarring us. How to give it a wake-up call. And that's what happens to Charlie or whatever this young prodigal's name is. When he came to his senses, important phrase, This is more than just common sense. It's awaking spiritually to the lostness of what my life is like cut off from God, with him out of the picture, and understanding that a restored relationship with the Father is the first step to recovery. It's about acknowledging the ways in which we have cut God out of our lives and are the poorer for it. And you know what we do? You come to your senses, and this is amazing because he says it right here, I will set out and go back to my Father. And if I want you to imagine kind of like a about face. He says, I want to go in a new direction. I want to go back to the Father. And there's a fancy word for that, theological word, you, can, you know, repent. <laughs> it literally means repent, means, you know, you've heard, repent, you know, repent. Repent simply just means turn, think again, turn around, and go in a new direction. And that's what he does. And that invitation God gives to anyone, anywhere who needs a second chance or feels lost. Acts 3, 19 and 20 make this invitation. Now it's time to change your ways, to repent, turn, to face God so he can wipe away your sins and send you the Messiah he prepared for you, namely Jesus. And the question is, does God really give second chances? I mean, come on. 
especially to those who've screwed up royally (laughs) or maybe just kind of like, you know, gave the finger to God. What I like about prodigals, I like you, (laughs) is that you're shrewd, street smart. (laughs) And this guy starts thinking in his mind, he's like, what am I going to do? He figures maybe my father will be merciful enough to accept me back, not as a son, but as what? A servant, a hired hand. So he's like, I'm going to spin this thing. I'm going to get back there. He's, the old man's going to be upset. And I'm going to say, will you take me back as a servant? Not as a son. I realize I've blown that relationship. And he starts heading home. And, and I'm imagining as he walked the dusty roads, maybe hitchhiking, you can imagine him like kind of nervously rehearsing the speech that he's prepared. Uh, I've sinned against heaven. And, again, and, and like, will he even be led in to see his father? And this is the moment that the religious prodigies in Jesus' audience would have savored. So if you're prodigals right now, you're tracking with that. But if you're prodigies, you're like, oh, this is, this is nice. Good. Yeah, all right. We should be nice to you know, people who really screwed up, made it a wreck for the rest of us. When Jesus told this story, the most religious and conservative ones in his audience, the Pharisees, the moral exemplars in his day, they were like, okay, here we go. Rock party. You make a mistake, you pay a price. Because we all know there are consequences for squandering your life. And they're like, it's a time for a little reckoning. Because at this moment in Jesus' story, and maybe you don't have this in your mind, but all Jewish listeners would have had one passage flood to the front of their head. Deuteronomy 21. It's squarely. See, the Old Testament Jewish law said that the punishment for a failure like this, check this out, I put it up here on the screen for you. Uh, But this is under the heading in Deuteronomy, a rebellious son. If a man has a stubborn and rebellious son who does not obey his father and mother and will not listen to them when they discipline him, his father and mother shall take hold of him and bring him to the elders at the, town, at the gate of his town. Then all the men of his town shall stone him to death. Thus saith the supernanny of the Old Testament. <laughs> Whoa! This, this was the operative law in parenting <laughs> for people with rebellious children who are disrespectful parents and wasteful of family resources. Death by stoning. So w- when Jesus is telling the story, the religious prodigies, the church people known as the Pharisees, they would have been like, here we go. Okay, rock star, you want to go get stoned? Yeah. Here you go. But in verse 20, Jesus throws a curveball instead of a rock. He says, no, and this, well, he was still a long way off. This father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. And he ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. This, this is a picture actually of Rembrandt's rendition of the prodigal, the lost son, amazing, famous painting. Dr. Ken Bailey, he's a Christian missionary to Lebanon. He was from the early 1900s and he ministered among rural Muslims. And they lived in a Middle Eastern culture very similar to the one that Jesus described, even though 20 centuries had passed. And when Dr. Bailey first read this story to Muslims in the, in the, in the Middle East in the 1900s, they jumped up and objected this part. They were listening all along. And, and at this moment, they said, no way, no way, Dr. Bailey. This would never happen in real life. This, this is a fiction, never. See, and he said, what do you mean? What, what, are, you, what are you talking about? He says, oh, oh for, for, in the Middle East... A patriarch, a man of stature, walks slowly and stately with dignity. Never, never do you run, especially any respected father in a, in a village. Traditional Middle Eastern patriarchs actually long, wore long robes. You can kind of see them there. You see them a little bit. And they never ran in public. And to do so would have been deeply humiliating. But in Jesus' story, the father does something that would have scandalized the assumptions of his audience. This father takes the bottom of his long robes in his hand. Think this, and sprints down the lane <laughs> towards his son. What's the significance of this detail? Why does the father run? Because he knows that if he can reach his son before his son reaches the gates, he will absorb the scorn and the shame and the punishment due his son. There'll be no judgment left for his neighbors to take up the cause. It was the ultimate undignified, humiliating act, and yet it was the only act that would spare his lost child, the punishment. I want you to put yourself in Charlie's place a minute, the prodigal. Imagine what the boy must have been thinking as he all of a sudden, he's been away, he threw away all his father's money, and now he sees his father running towards him, right? And the last thing he told his father was, I wish you were dead. Like, oh man, is he going to deck me? His arms are now outstretched closer, closer. Is he going to yell? He's grabbing my face. He, you are, you, I can't believe you are back. And he smothers him and kisses him and squeezes the life out of his son. I've been waiting, I've been watching. 
I've been scanning the horizon this whole time. Marking days on the calendar, waiting for this moment to have you back. And Jesus is like, this is what your heavenly father is like. This is what God is like. This is his heart for lost people. The lost people of Jesus' day, the prostitutes, the outcasts, the sinners, the tax collectors, they understood this. Who is God? The one who longs to embrace you no matter how badly you have blown it. No matter how badly you've blown it. Who desires to spare you punishment for all of your failings. So much so that he'll pay the price himself. Jesus is telling this crowd that your father is the one so desperate to find you that he'll literally absorb the penalty, even though you're the one who broke the relationship. And this is what the God of the Bible is really like, folks. I don't know who, what your pictures or images have been like for, of God, but far from controlling or vindictive, as some have distorted him to be, he is, above all else, forgiving, loving, eager to restore relationship with any man or woman who's lost their way in life. And this story paints such a beautiful picture of what God does for those of us who simply admit the truth that, we, that you know what, life without God is, is, is a wreck. See, God doesn't respond to our failings with justice. You know what justice is? You know what justice is. It's giving us what we deserve. Rather, God responds with something called grace. Grace is giving us what we need. This father gives his son something totally unexpected, totally undiscerned. I, I love this. Verse 21, the boy, you look at this in verse 21. The boy begins reciting the speech, right? He's like, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be, to be called your son. In, in, in other words, but his father just totally cuts him off. He's like, hired hand? Yeah, I don't think so. And with a snap of his fingers, he's like, bring him the best robe in the house. In ancient times, the patriarch had the finest robe in the house. So in other words, the father is saying, give this boy my robe. And put a ring on his finger. That was a signet ring, which indicated membership and authority in the family. And finally, bring him sandals for his feet. Do you know how Middle Easterners were able to distinguish between servants and sons in the first century culture? Hired help never wore sandals. Only family members did. Which simply announces this. This is not my servant. This is my son. This is a profound promise that Jesus is making to all of God's lost children. You will feel lost today. When we turn in repentance back to our Heavenly Father, we're not just forgiven, folks. We are family. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. This son of mine was dead. He's alive again. He was lost. He's found. And they begin to celebrate, which translates to make merry. He had a party. <laughs> House party. <laughs> and this is one of the most stirring pictures of grace, of God's heart towards lost people. It's actually, we shouldn't be surprised. This is a, you know, some people feel like, well, this must be new. This is Jesus talking. The God of the Old Testament, isn't he like bloodthirsty and like vindictive? No, they, this, God is the same yesterday, today, forever. The, this is a reflection of the name God calls himself in the Old Testament. Exodus 34, when someone says, what's your name? God says, the Lord, the Lord. Listen to this title he gives himself. The compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, Maintaining love to thousands, forgiving wickedness, sin, and rebellion. Uh, in your notes, circle that word gracious. I wrote in my notes just next to that. His name reveals his nature. <laughs> what is God really like? Compassionate and gracious. Actually slow to anger. <laughs> Not looking for us to get out of line and whack us with a stick. And forgiving of wickedness, rebellion, and high sin. Doesn't matter what you've done or where you've been. You matter to God doesn't matter how many times you've thrown it away. You are welcomed back at any time. If you're lost, this is the way home prodigals, believing that God actually is who he says he is, compassionate and forgiving. And if we turn from our sin, we believe that the Father will embrace us, that he truly is gracious. Grace, grace is a special type of love, not just affection, but a willingness to absorb the cost of our punishment. See, the, the Bible says the wages of sin is death. We, we talked about this. When we sin, we owe a debt, and something must pay for it. Something must die. And at, the, at the center of this reunion party that Jesus described, you'll notice that a fattened calf is prepared. And that's not just Middle Eastern custom, but it symbolizes a sacrifice that makes the restoration possible. The same is true spiritually. When we sin, something must die. Payment must be made, and that sacrifice was made 
by Jesus. This is why he's telling the story. Romans 3, 24 and 25 puts it this way. God got us out of the mess we're in and restored us to where he always wanted us to be. And here's how he did it. By means of Jesus Christ. God sacrificed Jesus on the altar of the world to clear that world of sin. And having faith in him sets us in the clear. See, Jesus came to die on a cross, the death we deserved. God sacrificed his own son so that lost people like you and me can be restored and become sons and daughters of God. That's grace. And there's nothing you can do to pay God back. It's a free gift from him. It's unlimited. Past sins, present sins, future sins. And when we put our confidence in Jesus' sacrifice, we are literally welcomed back into God's family, not just as a servant, but as a son or daughter. In other words, robe, ring, or sandals, the only way you receive those symbols of family belonging are through the sacrifice that pays for it, the life and death of Jesus Christ. A great way to remember grace is through a simple acrostic. I wrote this down. For some reason, I always remember this from the time I was six. God's riches at Christ's expense. In other words, we get the robe, we get the ring, we get the party. Why? Because of what we did? No. Because we paid it back? No. But because the Father accepts us back through simple trust in Jesus Christ. And this is good news, prodigals. That the only thing it takes to be spiritually found is to think again and turn around from our sin. To actually believe that maybe God will embrace me. Maybe this is true. And to put your complete confidence in Jesus' sacrifice. So, so this morning, if you identified with the prodigals, I have one simple question for you. On behalf of your heavenly father, will you come home? Will you come to your senses, as it were? Ad- admit your need and turn to your father who wants to find you. If so, you, c- you can simply pray. Let's bow our heads a moment. Let's, let's bow our heads a moment. If you've never prayed to ask God to accept you before, you can pray these words this morning. You can pray along with me. Say, God, I have been lost for some time. And I want to come home to you. And so this morning I admit my need. And I turn from my sin. And I ask you to accept me into your family. I believe that you love me and I put my full faith in Jesus' sacrifice for me. Forgive me. And make me family. Amen. If you you prayed that prayer this morning, welcome home. You've just been found by the God who's been waiting for you all along. That is literally how you become a Christian. A follower of Jesus. And some of you are like, can it really be that simple? (laughs) To restore your relationship with God? (laughs) The funny thing is, is that the simplicity of grace is what really ticks off prodigies. I, I want to conclude by, by, by quickly looking at the reaction of the older brother in Jesus' story. Because th- this is the story of two lost brothers, right? Charlie and Liam, Echo and Yummy. Quick survey. How many, how many folks here actually have been Christians for more than five years? You, you, you follow Jesus. Keep your hands up. More than 10 years? More than 10 years? More than 15 years? Okay, some long-time believers. That, that is a beautiful thing. Thank you. When you come in contact with someone who's walked with God for a long time, but, but in some ways, at least for me, longevity in the journey can also be a curse. Uh, I first invited Jesus into my life when I was seven. Uh, I, I remember this. I, I gave my life to Christ at a boys' brigade camp. I grew up like in a Christian family. It was like I went to church every week from, from, from like that moment on until I was like 17. <laughs> and I went to a Christian college. And, and, you know, yeah, there was some rebellion in like smaller, subtler ways. Never really like blew it spectacularly, okay? There was just too much of God from early on. Jesus, 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 24-7 from the time I was seven. <laughs> But, but one of the traps that the enemy lays for prodigies like me, who, who've, who've known God for a long time, who haven't ever really blown it or, or rebelled in a spectacular failure, kind of grown up in the bubble of churchianity and become comfortable with our church folks, the danger that lays in wait for us folks is that slowly and subtly, almost imperceptibly over the years, we actually lose touch with the miracle of God's grace. And that is, the further we progress from our original encounter with Jesus, we tend to eventually trade in that childlike trust that our Father loves us unconditionally for a more insidious brand of faith. A trust in religion. <laughs> or a system of rules and regulations that seem like they may be pleasing to God. They actually can, 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 can maybe I can do something about this. I, I can help make myself acceptable to God, but it actually hardens you to 
towards God's generosity towards people whose lives are in moral disrepair. This is actually what happened to the religious prodigies of Jesus' day. See the reason Jesus told this story in Luke 15? If you go back to the beginning of Luke, the Pharisees were having a hard time dealing with Jesus embracing unsavory elements in the neighborhood. Luke 15, 1 and 2 gives this context. It says, now the tax collectors, the cheats, and the sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and he like eats with them, like rubs elbows. Uh, Yeah, problem. And their grumbling triggered this parable. It it was hard, folks, for longtime church folks, folks who committed their lives to God, who devoted much of their lives to memorizing Scripture. It was difficult for them to swallow the fact that Jesus, God, he said, God is now opening up the kingdom of God to anyone, anywhere. (laughs) The people who've never even read the Bible before, who've never even been in church. See, see, the Pharisees had started off okay. They were passionate for God. They were like, I want to live a holy life. I want to be morally scrupulous, but somewhere along the way, they got off track and missed the forest for the trees. They become so exacting for living perfect lives by their own power that they became literal rule keepers. Pharisees had over 2,000 interpretations of the Bible, of detailed rituals and man-made regulations that covered everything from what you could eat to how you should dress, what you could or couldn't do. Lots of external rules, like praying a certain amount of time, giving a certain amount of money. And sadly, some of those traditions continue to this day. You ever been in churches where there are like all sorts of unwritten rules about how to dress, about how much, you know, you have to give? Here we go. Kind of a subtle spiritual, like there are superstars considered the experts. And the danger of that kind of mindset is what it does to the way we treat outsiders or people who are new to the faith. Because when we see God, our church, a church like ours, welcoming people as they are, not as they should be, you can easily become critical. It can strike us as unfair or unwise. And we see that in the response of the older brother when the prodigal returns home. Now I'm talking to long-time Christians here. I'm talking to myself. Verse 25 says, The older son was in the field. Again, right? Loyal, obedient, committed. But when he comes near the house, look at this in verse 27. He hears music and dancing, and it like sets him off. He's, he grabs the servant. He's like, what's going on here? <laughs> you ever been in church like that? What's going on here? And when the servant replies in verse 27, your brother came back. <laughs> And your father's killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother like flies into a rage. (laughs) Yo, you've seen this guy in church. He became angry, refused to go. And he said, look, all these years I've been slaving for you. I never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours... He's not a brother of mine. He's a son of yours (laughs) who squandered your property with prostitutes comes home. Prostitutes. Capital P. You kill the fattened calf for him? He's scandalized. How could anyone, any self-respecting father, allow a sexually broken and deviant sinner off the hook? Notice that the older brother, he refuses to associate with, yeah, when this son of yours, no son of mine, no, no brother of mine, I'll have nothing to do with him. He says, he squandered half your property with prostitutes. In other words, he's like, um, this is pretty obvious for everyone else to see. What's wrong with you, Pop? And with those words, he reveals one of the favorite pastimes of prodigies. We love our scorecards, don't we? <laughs> How are we doing? I'm doing pretty good. How are you doing? Not so great. Oh, oh I'm so sorry. Application, brothers and sisters. For us at Liquid, it's very clear. Our church is designed to reach two kinds of people. The unchurched, people who are taking a first step back to God. They are our passion. And if you're new to this whole God thing, welcome home. Welcome home. Maybe you enter God's family this morning. We are here for you. We we welcome you as is. No judgment. We are here to help you grow. But we also have a lot of over-church folks, like me. I feel like I went to church too much, (laughs) actually. In our struggles with judgmentalism towards outsiders. And so the test of our faith is our response to folks who are desperately in need of the Father's love. Let, let me make this live, prodigies. What's our response to the prodigal brother among us who's struggling with homosexuality? Gut response. Compassion? Not typically. Disgust? Condemnation? Name-calling? Very typical. Fag, queer? Let's stage a protest. Let's do that. That'll help. Let's pass some legislation. What about the prodigal sister who finds herself trapped in an unwanted pregnancy and sees no alternative but abortion? We go to name-calling. 
slut. Murderer. More condemnation, more rejection. Or the mom on welfare with the three kids, no husband, no job skills, and we have no concept of the effects that that cycle of poverty and ignorance have had on her. And, and just like, well, she's she, she lazy, lazy bum. Get a job for crying out loud. And if one of those lost souls should happen to find his or her way back into this church, as they seek to find the Father, what would our reaction be? Honestly, I'm thinking that, that some of us would be, would be fine with it if they at least just kind of like cleaned up their act and tried to actually look a little bit like us. <laughs> Otherwise, many of us, maybe subtly, would kind of reject them because we don't like their language. We don't like their smell. We don't like their values. And it's just too easy to criticize their sinful past and refuse to say, we're family. We got the same blood in us now. And yet Jesus said that our refusal to embrace the lost and instead embrace religion rather than grace is the things that causes prodigies to become spiritually lost as well. See, religion places the emphasis on our man-made attempts to earn God's approval. It's all about rule-keeping rather than an inner attitude of love and grace. And suddenly faith becomes about external boundary markers, you know, not smoking or drinking or, or associating with people who do or, don't, or, or reading the Bible or going to church becomes a matter of duty. I've got to put in my time. That's why I'm here this morning. Some of you are like, amen, that's me. <laughs> rather than I came out of a desire to be with my family and to be with my father and spend time with him. And when that happens, it puts the emphasis on what I do for God rather than what God's done for me. And when we slip into that attitude or mindset, folks, we are lost. We actually can spend our lives in the close company of the Father and yet fail to understand His grace and mirror it in our lives. We swap, we swap relationship for religion. In verse 29, you can just hear the self-righteousness surface. You see it? Look, all these years, you may be blind, but I've been keeping track. I've been slaving for you. How does your, how does your Christian life feel? Does it feel heavy? Sometimes it feel like slaving. It's like, I never broke a rule, Dad, and what do I get for it? Nothing. You roll out the red carpet once Charlie Boy comes home after sowing his oats. <laughs> it's funny, I was doing a little research for this. There's a preacher by the name of Fred Caddick who actually, he was telling the story to his congregation, his church, and he actually changed the details of the parable just like he was reading it, just to make a point. In, in his sermon, he had the father slip the ring and the robe on the older brother and then kill the fatted calf in honor for his years of faithfulness and obedience. And as the story goes, a woman in the back of his church sanctuary actually yelled out, that's the way it should have been written. It's an amazing thing. But Jesus is suggesting the older brother, the prodigy who stayed at home, followed the rules, kept his nose clean, is just as lost, if not more so, than his prodigal brother. Incredible. You'd think that getting religion is the way to be spiritually found, and Jesus is saying, not so. In fact, in Jesus' day, he indicated that the religious people were more damaged by their rule-keeping than the sinners were by their sin. It's tragic. How can you do that? It's, it's very possible. In, in John 5, 39, 40, Jesus rebuked um, the Pharisees this way. He said, you guys diligently study the scriptures because you think that by them you possess eternal life. These, this Bible testifies about me, Jesus, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. Dead religion, the worst type of spiritual lostness. Galatians 2, 16 says this. We know very well we're not set right with God by rule-keeping but only through personal faith in Jesus Christ. Getting right with God this morning, folks, if you're a prodigy, has nothing to do with the stuff you do. It's not how you get into heaven, not by good deeds. It's simple trust in Jesus. And that's a corrective to us. Because if you settle for religion, you're unwittingly negating the huge sacrifice that God made in giving Jesus to us. Galatians 2.21 continues. It says, if a living relationship with God could come by rule keeping, then Christ died unnecessarily. Who's the lost boy in this story? In the end of Jesus' story, what's most shocking is that guess who's on the outside looking in? Who is it? The prodigy. Verse 28 leaves us this image of estrangement. Take a look at this. The older brother became angry. He can throw it up there, Jen, but he refused to go in. He crosses his arms. Hard-hearted. Bitter. And it's like now who's disgracing dad and humiliating him with his I-know-what's-best attitude. <laughs> what's amazing is that the grace of our father is so limited folks rule breakers rule keepers god doesn't care he loves them both and he actually goes in search of his second lost son his father went out and pleaded with him in the last verse 31 says my son the father said you're always with me everything i have is yours but we had to celebrate and be glad because this, this brother of yours was dead and he's alive again and he's lost and is found and i love that he calls the prodigy my son it's like you may have lost touch with my grace but i want to reconcile with you too 
You are always with me. You are as close to my heart and as much the object of my grace as your brother. And everything I have is yours. You don't even realize the riches of this house are valuable to you. Not just a goat, but everything. Why haven't you asked? Because you're lost too, aren't you? You've come to see me as a taskmaster. And you forgot that I'm a loving father first and foremost. You're my son, not a slave. And you don't have to earn my acceptance. Because it's about my generosity, not your performance. Don't ever forget this, folks. Folks, the only performance that counts, the sacrifice of my sinless son, Jesus, that's the reason we can celebrate and invite both of you into the party. You know, it doesn't say whether the older brother came back into the party or not. Jesus kind of let us hang there for the Pharisees to wrestle with. But the invitation at the end of Jesus' stories is the same to now the prodigies among us. Prodigies, this morning, feeling distant from God? Christian life gotten heavy? More about kind of putting your time in and like doing... Will you come to your senses as well? Repent of your religious spirit, your judgmentalism, your dulled heart. We all need to do this for now. I need to, I'm preaching this to myself. If you have a sense of superiority towards others and just humbly cry out to God because that's the gospel. The invitation to restored relationship with the Father through Christ for lost people everywhere. Who were you? Or you, when you, I'd ask you today, were you, did you say I was a prodigal or I'm a prodigy? Whether you're a runaway rule breaker from God and you're trying to find your way back, come home running. Your father's arms are open so wide. Or if you've been in the family for some time and in all of your work and laboring, you've lost connection with the heart of your father, it's called grace, folks. Step inside the party and take a load off. It's never been about your performance and never will be. It's always been about dad's generosity and mercy to all. Let's stand together for prayer. Lord, we thank you for the scandal of grace. It's amazing, Lord. There's no other religion suggests that we don't have to do anything but simply admit our need to be accepted by God. And so we thank you for Jesus Christ. Lord, I thank you um, for the men and women who took a step back to you today, Father. Maybe some, um, Lord, admitting their need for you for the first time, putting their faith in Jesus' death and resurrection for them. Lord, that's an awesome thing, Lord. Would you, would you grow them, Lord? Would you just fill them even during our closing worship with your spirit? But Lord, I also pray for those of us, Lord, who maybe we've been going through the motions, Lord. It's natural. Yeah, I thank you for this wake-up call, for your story, Lord, of lost people and realize that we can be lost even when we're inside of a church. Thank you that you care, Lord. Would you now build into us the kind of passion and heart and love for broken people who need your help. Make this the kind of church, Lord, that um, only you can get credit for. We ask that in the name of Jesus. All God's people said.